Uh, today, we are very blessed to have with us Gant Fallen. Gant is a St. Philippian. Uh, he serves on our vestry here. Uh, many of you know him as a uh, very well thought of commercial real estate appraiser and consultant who now owns his own firm here. Um, Gant's an alumnus of the Citadel and he is uh, paying it back there by helping a lot with uh, the St. Albans Chapel Committee and Rob Sturdy's ministry over there to the cadets, which if you do not know about that, please do yourself a favor and learn about that because it is an extraordinary ministry that is bearing great fruit. Uh, Gant, like so many people who grew up in the South, grew up as what you might call a pew warmer and uh, was warming that pew on a regular basis, uh, but he didn't really perhaps put together all that that meant until later in life, and we're going to hear a little bit about that uh, today. Gant is married to Danielle, who is terrific, and they have two wonderful daughters. Um, please join me in welcoming Gant Fallon. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. If I seem nervous, I am very nervous. Um, I'd like to begin by actually reading something that we uh, read in Bible study this morning. Um, years ago, uh, John Carrison asked me if I'd like to join his Bible study. Uh, I ran into him in the narthex, and uh, I'd grown up with, uh, well, not grown up, but I attended the Citadel with Lee Carrison. And I got to know John, his older brother, and I said, well, maybe I'll do that. And I showed up, and I was uh, like a fish out of water, uh, said all the wrong things. Um, but they loved me, and they took care of me. And I gradually began to learn things and to grow in the faith. This morning, uh, we just started a new... Um, a new study of First Peter, and we talked about how Peter makes an introduction to um, some Christians and Gentiles in the area outside of Jerusalem, uh, Bithynia and Galatia, and he says this, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In a, in a sense, he's saying he's giving a blessing at the outset. Uh, to all of these folks, and and he's carrying, telling a greater story about uh, what what this life's all about. Um, and with that, maybe I can go into. I've got a little bit of a PowerPoint, or really, I think this is uh, Google Slides. But my story uh, really begins uh, with my grandfather. I I was born in Charlotte, and. My grandfather, uh, Joseph Sherwood Harvard, um, baptized me at a Presbyterian church in Charlotte, and um, my mother would tell me all of this. I certainly wasn't cognizant of what was going on back then, but um, later we moved to Columbia, and my grandmother um, gave, wrote a little note and gave me one of Papa's Bibles. Um, King James Bible, and she wrote a note and said, this was Papa's Bible. 
I want you to have it for your confirmation. Class of 1981, I love you, Mimi. I recently had not kept up with a lot of this stuff. My My mother had boxed up a lot of these things when we moved to Mount Pleasant from Columbia, my wife and I. And the interesting thing was a lot of these things started to just, as, as I unpacked and we uh, moved into our first house, I started noticing different things. Um, I remember finding this Bible and then reading this card again as an older person and, and just realizing that that message would, you know, carried through time, that even though she's no longer with us, nor is my grandfather, um, that this may, might be something pretty important that I should pay attention to. Um, later on, we would uh, join St. Philip's Church. Uh, we wanted to introduce our daughters to, uh, to the faith, and we wanted to get serious about it, my wife and I. And that's when I met John Carrison. And while I'd grown up in the church, uh, I certainly believed and prayed to God all the time, but I don't know if I really had a relationship. I think I heard somebody say that uh, once that, you know, it's not so much about a religion, it's about the relationship that we have with Jesus. And so as, as I began to attend the Bible studies and learn more, uh, I eventually bought a Bible and, uh, and started reading it. And uh, bit by bit, it, it slowly began to take hold. It began to permeate my being. And, and I began to grow and to start to learn, what is, you know, what is this life all about? What are we here for? And, uh, and, and as, I, as we uh, progressed, uh, one day, uh, December 2nd, 2006, my brother called me from Columbia and said, Gant, Dad died. And it was very profound. I was out of town. Um, my father, as you can see, was, you know, as a Citadel graduate, he finished in 61. He was, uh, you're allowed to give your, your child your degree, and uh, that's him passing along my degree uh, when I graduated in 1991. Um, my uncle preached that service, and there was a couple of paragraphs in that uh, sermon that he gave for my father um, that day um, when we had the service that I thought was pretty profound. I'd like to read it to you. Um, He said this. He said, in my tradition, we call this service a witness to the resurrection. It is also a time to celebrate the life of our deceased or loved one who's passed. However, it is, it is an extremely difficult task to affirm our faith and give thanks with the death of someone we dearly love staring us in the face. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that we do grieve, but not as those who have no hope. He went on to say, grieving and gratitude often embrace on such an occasion as this for people of faith. I have been helped with this by some words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As many of you already know and are well-versed, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian in Germany during World War II. He gave a powerful witness to his faith in opposition to the Nazi government and was executed for his resistance on Christmas Eve, 1943. He wrote these, these words to his parents from his Nazi prison cell. 
Nothing can make up for the absence of someone we love, and it would be wrong to try and find a kind of substitute. We must simply hold out and see it through. This sounds very hard at first, but at the same time it is a great consolation. For the gap, as long as it remains unfilled, preserves the bonds between us. It is nonsense to say that God fills the gap. God doesn't fill it. But on the contrary, God keeps it empty and so helps us keep alive our communion with each other. From his letters and papers from prison, page 176. That really hit home. Um, And I still have communion with my father, even though he's not here. But uh, my dad was a geotechnical engineer, a foundational engineer. Uh, He was charged with testing the soil and figuring out what it would take, uh, what kind of load-bearing pilings uh, were required to support a building. Uh, But growing up with my father and going to church and the impact my grandfather had on my mother, uh, they sort of planted the seeds. And I think indirectly my dad may have been always pointing pointing me to the true foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Um... And since I've also, uh, I found this, um, this is another item that was found in that bin that my mother had sent along with us when we moved to Mount Pleasant back in 1997. It's a picture of St. Philip's Church, and, uh, well, actually it's a painting, small painting. Um, But that sits uh, up on a uh, piece of furniture in our living room, so I pass by that every day, and Looks as though <laughs> we were always destined to join this church. Um, uh, after uh, getting uh, getting sort of into the Bible study, it got into my blood. Um, I decided, you know what? I'd, I'd really like to go hear Dana Hykus and his study. I want to learn about the liturgy, the seasons, and how this thing works. And uh, so this is an email um, from Jerry setting the tone for the upcoming uh, service and the readings from the Old Testament and the New Testament that we would learn about, uh, which takes place on Thursday. Uh, Y'all should come. You're invited anytime. Um, This is uh, a copy of um, John Stotts and uh, the other author. Um, We've just finished this Bible study on Luke. And this was, I, I decided to include this because it, um, John Carrison's been teaching this class and it was excellent and I wanted to, to show that as well. Um, from my Bible study, uh, I really got the bug. Uh, it, I felt as though God was chasing me down, that the target was on my heart, that I was the one that he was pursuing and... I started buying books uh, that were about the resurrection, about the people that were in Jesus' life. You can see N.T. Wright, uh, former bishop of Durham, uh, the fourth highest position in the English Anglican Church, a scholarly position. I think he served there 10 years. Um, He's a prolific writer. Um, And then uh, I I was able to have the blessing um, for mere Anglicanism uh, Dr. Alistair McGrath is a uh, professor at Oxford University, and he was one of our guest speakers. He was the keynote speaker, and I was um, 
given the great privilege to go pick him up from the airport and drive him back uh, two days later. Uh, that was a special time. Uh, and finally, I was able to get the gumption up to ask the single question that you're allowed to ask when you have somebody uh, in, the, in the passenger seat. And uh, so that was really interesting. He, he makes a point about, um, in one of his earlier books, uh, if I could have lunch with C.S. Lewis, that, you know, he, he sums it up this way, two and two equals four, but that's not the reason we get out of bed this morning, in the morning. Um, his point is that we can that we can have all of the tools and the rationality and, and all of the things that we use in our day-to-day uh, work, you know, starting our work week out. But there's this other part of us that longs to be with our family, and that's, what we're, that's what, what we're aiming at towards the end of the week. We look forward to spending time with close friends and family, and it, it sort of goes towards the love we have for one another. That That's what we really seek out and, and that we desire that, that, that family, that unexplainable, irrational thing called love. Um, I recently read this book by Dr. Paul L. Meyer, and he, he is a really uh, incredible scholar, uh, archaeologist, uh, Lutheran uh, theologian, and this was very helpful. And I, so the point is, I just began to read more and more, and everything seemed to, to point towards Christ. Um, I, I felt my, my life changing. Um, everything seemed to, to go in that direction. Um, I, <laughs> our rector, Jeff, says, you know, the best Bible study is the one you're currently working on, um, or what the one you're currently studying. Um, I was watching Eric McTaxis uh, in an interview with this author, um, and I decided to buy this book, and her name is Eugenia Scarvellis Scontantinu, Ph.D. She approaches um, from her faith, which is uh, Eastern Orthodox, and this is an incredible passage, um, a bit of information that she uh, brings out. Um, talking about Abraham, Isaac, and the Passover in the Old Testament. And I'd just like to read this really quickly. Um, on page 113, the binding of Isaac is closely associated with Passover in Jewish tradition. Jews celebrate Moses and the Exodus at Passover, but the Akedah is also associated with Passover because Jews believe that Abraham, who died hundreds of years before Moses, preserved the Israelites from the angel of death during the Exodus. Various rabbinic texts explain that the Jews' deliverance at Passover was God's reward for the piety of the patriarchs. Jewish tradition specifically links Isaac and the Passover lamb. In the non-canonical Jewish literature popular during the first centuries B.C. and A.D., such as the Book of Jubilees, the crucifixion of Jesus at Passover is no mere coincidence. The father's willingness to sacrifice his son. Abraham and Isaac walked together for three days to Mount Moriah, carrying everything necessary for the sacrifice. Isaac carried the wood on his back, but wondered why they had no lamb. When he questioned his father, Abraham replied, God will, God will provide the lamb. Knowing all along that Isaac was to be the sacrifice, as Abraham, as Abraham lifted his hand, holding the knife, he was stopped by the angel of the Lord, who told him not to harm his son. 
A ram was caught by its horn in a nearby thicket, and Abraham offered the ram instead of Isaac. Footnote number five says, Abraham did not offer a young lamb, but a ram, a fully grown male sheep, just as Christ was not a child, but a fully grown man when he offered himself up. Both the ram and Jesus were sacrifices provided by God. When I looked up after reading that page, up on that mantle I saw a copy of The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. And right beside it, mounted was a ram's horn. And I thought to myself, wow, that's in living color. Christ and the fully male grown sheep, a ram. Some of the other photos I, I show here, this is... Uh, um, the chapel, Summerall Chapel, I went to the Citadel, and that has a great deal of meaning. And carved on the top of the entrance, it says, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. And that gets me to thinking about what it was like when I was a child, when those seeds were planted by my grandfather, my grandmother, my parents, that my real identity has always been tied up in Jesus Christ. I took a photo of this to remind myself, this is a uh, piece on one of our walls in our living room, to not store up things in this life and to, to, to be able to put, put things out there, to, to give, give it my all and to, to do it for, for Christ. And so all of these things have meaning and then I began, then I got, got really interested in the Shroud of Turin. Um, I was telling Bill Christian, he gave, in his sermon, he referenced uh, Genesis 3.15. And uh, the photographs, when you take a photograph of the image on the Shroud of Turin, um, when, the, when the lights and darks are reversed, you get this incredible image. It's almost like an x-ray. Um, some of the hypotheses or the top hypotheses is that they think it's some type of low thermal ultraviolet radiation emanating from the body which caused this image on this textile. Um, three to one herringbone weave with a zip tie which meets Jewish standards for linen. Um, two by eight cubits, Assyrian cubits, there's various measurements, 21 inches. And we can see that on his forehead, there's a three and a one or an epsilon. There's a lot of speculation about that. What might that mean? Is that a sign? On the left side, you see the, uh, the tent-shaped uh, blood stain. Um, Dr. Sebastian Radante has done a study and says, you know, in fact, the venous vein, which returns the blood back to the heart, is located right here, and it, the blood would have coagulated in just that manner. Um, on the other side, the temple artery is uh, uh, an artery that would have burst and would have spurted the blood. We know that Jesus was crowned with thorns. Um, some think it may have been a cap of thorns. They have found certain flowers that only bloom in the spring that are only found in Jerusalem. Um, 
There's a lot going on there. I won't get, go down that rabbit hole, but what's interesting is if you go to the Old Testament and you read Genesis 3, 15, you see that Jesus, the, it was prophesied that he would be stricken on the heel. Um, let me see what that says exactly. Uh, he shall bruise your heel and you, and you shall bruise his head. They found a one, one, first century, one first century ossuary. Uh, gentleman's name is on the ossuary. It says Yehohanan. And he was crucified. It's the only uh, evidence of a crucifixion. And lo and behold, there's a seven-inch Roman nail driven through the heel. Um, don't know uh, what's going on there, but there's, uh, if you, as you can see, a heavy price was paid if this is indeed the image of, uh, it's, which has always been referred to throughout history as a cara poietis, which is Greek for not by human hands made. Um, you can see that by his stripes we are healed. Uh, you can see over there the spear wound. <clears throat> there was no attending physician. The only way to get the body off the cross was to for the Roman soldier to make sure that that was the case, that he was indeed dead. John says that out of that wound, blood and water burst out, but all do doctors know that that man is, is indeed deceased when water and pericardial fluid begin to flow out of a wound like that. The heart is stopped. Um, I show that because it, we need to be reminded that a, a significant price was paid. That this man came on a mission to die for us. And we need to be, always be asking what... What's he doing on that cross? What does he know? What's, what's beyond? What, 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 are, what is the promise? Uh, what causes a man to spend 30 years of his life, three years in ministry, and change the world? Uh, this right here is a, another um, photograph. In 1978, uh, Eric Jumper and John Jackson, a physicist at U.S. Air Force Academy um, began asking questions and placed an image of the shroud in a device known as a VP-8 image analyzer. It was designed for the U-2 spy planes. They were having trouble figuring out what it was they were seeing from such high altitudes when, they, uh, when the satellite planes would fly over. And they placed the image in the VP-8 and realized that it had three-dimensional properties. Um, if you place any other image, a picture of myself or yourself, in that device, it will be all skewed and distorted. Yet we see here that, that there are three-dimensional properties embedded in that image. Uh, in the Passion of the Christ, you see the, you see the linen fall right through the body, and some speculate that his body became so perfectly ordered that he could walk through walls or... Um, eat, eat broiled fish, and uh, that he became perfect. Um, anyway, something to think about. This is the beach house that my mother gets for us every year. Um, it's, at Pauly, it's located at Pauly's Island, one jetty south of the pier. Um, Stoney Miller, who, built, <laughs> who developed this house, uh, 
It used to be called No Saints, N-O. Uh, they liked to have a good time back in the day. And then one day, I think Stoney found the Lord, and he changed it to No Saints. And it got me thinking, you know, I really need to know the saints. And when I meet all of you, and I see what, what all is going on in the church, it makes me think, this is the, this is the place I need to be. These are the people, the saints that are working for the Lord in the kingdom. And finally, this hangs on our wall. I memorized this uh, finally walking by it. My wife bought this. Um, this is Peter's favorite, I mean, sorry, uh, the Apostle Paul's favorite um, passage, or one of his special passages. Usually read at weddings, um, first, first Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not seek its own, is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffering. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And finally, my dad gave us this, I don't know what you call this, a little block of wood uh, that he gave to my wife and I when we were married. Um, it says, live well, laugh often, love much. And that got me thinking about What's, what, how can I live well? If I, can I follow Christ and abide in Him? I think we all know that Christ wants us to laugh a lot and to enjoy each other. But mostly, He wants us to love much. And then I thought, you know what? It's an upside-down kingdom. I think love's supposed to be on top, and so I flipped it over. This bothers my family to no end. <laughs> Every time we have guests over there, like, why is that? Why do you have that upside down? But I needed it. It gets me to thinking about the, the right perspective. And in a sense, you can read from right to left. I don't know whether the Hebrew language is perhaps better than the way we do it. But anyway, we had, in that case, love is on top. And, and uh, anyway, that's, I think, what we should always think about. Um, I think the, good, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the problem was the, the priest, the gentleman that just walked by the, the fellow human being that was so, sojourning in this life, who had been beaten up and robbed and pillaged. One of the things that they could not see from so much of the principalities and powers of this world that tend to bind us and make us not be able to see and hear was that they couldn't see his humanity first. That if they could have seen his, his humanity, that, he, that, that gentleman that had been robbed and beaten up, that those priests may have stopped. Um, the Samaritan could see the image of God, imagio Dei, and that's why he stopped because he saw that that poor soul was made in the image of God. And that's our family. That's, uh, uh, those are my two girls, Francis and Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth actually means in Hebrew, um, God is my oath. Um, 
I used to think it was an English name, but then I was like, wait a minute, we got to go back a little further. There, Elizabeth was the sister of Mary, or cousin of Mary. Um, one day, her history teacher at middle school asked her, you know, asked the whole class, do you know, does anybody know what the letters A.D. mean? And she said, Anno Domina, the year of our Lord. So that was a very proud moment for me. <laughs> well, that's enough about me, but... Thank you for listening. Thank you for showing up today. Always stay humble and have great humility. That is the peat that allows us to hear and see and understand the parables so that we can go and spread the good news of Christ throughout the world. Thank you. Gant, thank you so much for sharing from your heart with us. One of the things I love about Gant's story is that it is not a spectacular God caught me when I jumped off a cliff and um, drew me to salvation kind of story, but it's the story of someone whose heart was turned toward God and that as he began to invest himself in more than just going on Sundays, and got into the Word of God and began experiencing fellowship, the Holy Spirit quickened his heart and brought him to a place of faith that was far deeper and more full of joy than anything he had ever experienced. And I think there's a great word in that for many of us today, that when we invest ourselves in the Word of God and the people of God in worship, um, it opens the door where the Holy Spirit can do amazing things in our hearts. So thank you again, Gant, for sharing with us. As I said before, this is our uh, last men's lunch. Bookers. Uh, I would encourage you, if you are not on our email list, um, to please let me know or to um, sign up uh, for that. You can just email St. Phillips and we'll get you on there. And now as we close, um, let me say a prayer for us and then we'll end with a blessing. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did send your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our salvation, to be that Passover lamb that was prefigured in the Old Testament. Lord, we thank you for the grace shown to us and we pray that you would quicken our hearts to respond by following you. Lord, we thank you for Gant's words and example and pray that we would be drawn to your word, that we would be drawn to your people, and that we would be drawn to worship you, that we might grow deeper in our walk with you. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.